Hi, everybody. Liam here. Just wanted to start off with a message that this episode is sponsored by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals. For over a century, UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital Oakland has upheld a long legacy of providing essential health care for kids and families across the East Bay. Today, UCSF is continuing the tradition of care by making a major investment, which includes a new hospital building that will expand critical treatment options for those who need it most. To learn more about the future of UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital Oakland, check out the link in my show notes, or I'll also be posting about it on my Instagram page. All right, on with the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Emeryville is a tiny town, less than two square miles. It's nestled between Oakland and Berkeley, right at the foot of the Bay Bridge. Most people probably think of it as a place to go shopping. Two major freeways cut through Emeryville, and from your car, while you're probably sitting in traffic, uh, you can see giant signs for Ikea, Target, Bay Street Mall, and if you're not from the Bay Area, you might have heard of Emeryville because it's the home of Pixar. But this new era of Emeryville, as the home of cartoons and commerce, uh, it's relatively new. Just a generation ago, things were drastically different. Media often described it as a, quote, industrial wasteland because of all the toxic pollution that was left behind after most of the major factories shut down in the 1970s and 80s. Emeryville, or <laughs> Evil, was also known for corruption. And not just like boring, run-of-the-mill old kickback schemes, more like the police chief's friends might burn your business down type corruption. Yeah. Fast forward to 2023, Emeryville just got a new mayor, the first black woman to hold that position, and uh, she recently told the San Francisco Chronicle that her town is undergoing a renaissance. And I don't think she's wrong. On the same land where there were junkyards and toxic waste, now there are parks and greenways, new residential development, shops, and, you know, the place really seems to be thriving. I, uh, I even wrote an article about it for SF Gate last month about some of my favorite things to do in Emeryville. And the piece got a huge response, which is great. Um, and I thought since a lot of people seem to be checking out Emeryville for the first time now, uh, it would be a good opportunity to look back at Emeryville's history and ask some important questions. Like, how did it become such a hellhole in the 1970s? Uh, how did it transform so, so radically since then? And why does this extremely unique, tiny little town even exist in the first place? Spoiler alert, the answers to all these questions are pretty crazy. Uh, there's a good reason why former Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren famously called Emeryville the rottenest city on the Pacific coast. Okay, so first off, I'll be talking to Joe Tanner, who served as Emeryville's city manager back in the 1980s. Then you'll be hearing my conversation with Rob Arias, the publisher of the Evil Eye, Emeryville's premier news site. Uh, Rob is also the creator of the Emeryville Historical Society's new self-guided walking tour, which I highly recommend. Uh, it's an app with tons of cool stories and photos, but we'll get to that later. First, my conversation with Joe Tanner. Just to set the scene, Joe was only 26 years old when he was hired as city manager in 1984. A new slate of reformers had just been elected to city council on the promise to clean up Emeryville. The new city council had just fired the town's notoriously corrupt police chief, a guy named John Lacoste, and they brought in Joe Tanner to clean up the mess that Lacoste left behind. Joe, he was in way over his head. Uh, his previous job was a supervisor at a camel soup factory uh, outside of Sacramento, but somehow he ended up with the city manager position and uh, he lived to tell the tale. Folks, 
You're not going to want to miss this one. This is East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. I knew when there was a, a problem with the uh, management of Emeryville uh, before I got there. It didn't take a rocket scientist to see it. And the reason the, the, uh, for the political turmoil is the police chief ran the city with an iron fist. That was the voice of Joe Tanner. He was California's youngest city manager when he arrived in Emeryville in 1984. And then I show up and try to figure out what's going on. I immediately discovered the city was just more broke than I'd originally thought, and how am I gonna pay the bills? Like I said, there was very little retail in Emeryville at that time. There was a couple of liquor stores, and you know, card rooms were kind of a, there were five card rooms at the time, and they were a big deal. And a couple of the card rooms were operated and ran by the Chinese mafia, the, the Wa Ching Gang. At that time, I did not know that. Um, I didn't learn that until later. Anyway, the first week I'm there, I, I want to talk to my finance director. Actually, I want to talk to him the first day I got there. So he wasn't there. And so I called him and I said, hey, when are you coming in? He's uh, coming in. I, I, I just go in there now and then. I said, wait a minute, you're a full-time employee, right? Yeah. You don't come in? No, I, I, that's the arrangement I made with, you know, with John Lacoste. I don't, I don't have to go to work. And um, I said, hmm, interesting. And so I called Jack Meehan because I smelled a rat. Jack Meehan was the district attorney of Alameda County at the time. Remember that name, Jack Meehan, because you'll be hearing it <laughs> quite a few times in this story. All right, uh, back to the quote-unquote finance director who was hired by former police chief John Lacoste. And I explained the situation to the district attorney, and he said, well, you certainly have a right to fire the guy if he doesn't go to work, come to work. And he, that may be some criminality there because, uh, you know, you don't give someone a job who doesn't have to go to work. I said, what do you suggest I do? And he said, well, I, I'd call him in. And he told me I'd call him in and fire him and see what he does. So I, I called the city treasurer back up and slash finance director. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, if you quit, it's over. I won't go to the district attorney and file any charges on you. And I've talked to the district attorney and he says he won't file any charges if you just quit because that's the cleanest way that we end our relationship. And he said, why? I don't want to end the relationship. I like what I'm doing. And I said, well, you got to go to work, number one. <laughs> and he said, I can't go to work. I have a full-time accounting business that I run. And I said, well, I, I need a full-time guy, so you're consider yourself fired. And he didn't put up much of a squawk over that. He just left quietly because I think he was kind of afraid that... Uh, he'd get charges filed against him. And that was, that was like first week I was there. And the end of the week, I called the, um, I forgot, it was Director of Personnel Services, I think his title was. Anyway, his full-time job was to pick up a check for the city's insurance, walk it across the street to the Blue Cross office, and hand them the check. He didn't have a job. I fired him, too, uh, and his deal was he gave his salary to the former police chief to dole out and campaign contributions, and I found that out. I said, oh, man, this is really something, and I called Jack Meehan back, and I said, this is what i got going on, and he said, you got a problem. Boy, keep at it. <laughs> he was very, very supportive of me, and he said, watch your back. So were you worried about Lacoste coming after you? Was How much pushback were you getting? Probably too ambitious, too young, and maybe even a little bit too dumb to care. I thought I was, you know, I was a, the, the new kid in town that was going to clean up Emeryville. And that was, really, that was, that was laser focused on that. Yeah, when I think back about it, I could have been killed. 
there could have been some serious consequences. And I'm surprised it wasn't. Here's a few things you should know about Emeryville's former police chief, John Lacoste. Even though he technically had an office, John usually ran things from the back room of the townhouse, a bar that used to be a speakeasy and brothel during the Prohibition era. Lacoste dressed flashy, you know, big gold rings. He drank Shiva's Regal while he was on the clock, uh, and he drove around in a DeLorean. Yes, the police chief drove around in the Back to the Future car, you know, the one with the doors that open up instead of out. Uh, and if you don't believe me, check out the 1983 documentary, Million Dollar Mud Flats. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. There's some incredible footage. Uh, anyway, this guy, John Lacoste, he was simultaneously scary and ridiculous. According to more than one source, the way that Lacoste kept people in line was with blackmail. Content warning, this next section mentions sex workers. There was a camera set up in the townhouse back room. And, uh, and they would, some people, and, it was, and the police chief was accused of this, but never proven, would bring in hookers and provide hookers to the city council and film it. And the reason I know this, or how I've heard of this, is when, when I came to Emeryville, Dottie Hines was the mayor. Wonderful woman, very honest, just great lady. And no dummy and very smart. Anyway, her husband was on the city council and had passed away by the time I got there. And she ran after he had passed away and got, I don't know, I don't believe he got, she got his seat, but anyway, she ran for council and got elected. And she told me that her husband was being bribed by the police chief uh, because he had him on tape seducing a hooker, as well as other council members. And he came clean with his wife, Dottie, and then Dottie relayed that information to me. Oh, so when you said he was being bribed, did you mean blackmailed? Yes. Okay, right, right, right. That makes the sense. council member was being, being blackmailed. Being blackmailed, right, okay. Allegedly by the police chief to, right. do, I see. to do as he is told. That makes sense. And so he basically had an iron hand. And so he, the, essentially this is how the police chief came to have more power than the mayor because he had kind of files on people and yes. all this sort of dirt. Yes, yeah. And the police chief was very large in the Democratic Party. He was a, he was a big shot in the party. There was, there was a picture of him on the wall with Jimmy Carter. Uh, and he would give donations, very large donations, to council members. He'd pay for their elections. He'd give money to the Democratic Party, from Senate to Congress to the President large amounts of money, more than a police chief could be able to afford. So he had absolute control of council. I don't have any definitive proof, but stories like this next one sure make it seem like Lacoste's political connections helped keep him out of trouble. Jack Meehan called me up one day out of the blue and he says, I'm filing charges against Mr. Lacoste. I said, oh, wow, what for? And he says, well, we have evidence and proof that your police chief was buying weapons from all the gun vendors. And he was buying them legally from the gun vendors. Oh, so like gun stores. Uh, or, or directly from the, the gun manufacturers. I see, okay. And police departments get a huge discount on firearms from the gun manufacturers because they want, they want cops to use their guns. It you know it looks makes him look good I suppose, and and so he bought all these guns and then he turned around and would sell them, at retail prices, and and and, and Jack Bean says I got him but it, you know but the problem is it's a federal violation, not a state violation, and I'm worried about the U.S. attorney coming in and taking the case, and if he does. It's going to be a federal case. And he didn't trust the U.S. attorney at that time. And sure enough, the U.S. attorney took jurisdiction of the case. Sad part of it is 
the U.S. attorney sat on the case until the statute of limitations expired, and he was off free. After the newly elected city council reformers fired Chief Lacoste on account of rampant misconduct, they had his office sealed. After they hired Joe Tanner, they told Joe to break the seal and take a look. What he found, it pretty much confirmed everybody's worst suspicions about how Lacoste had been running the town. We went in there and we discovered in the files under um, all the various businesses in, in uh, Emeryville had $100 bills stuffed in the files, just $100 bills. And there was, was it six or $7,000 we pulled out of the files and $100 bills and with little notes. And what was going on, I got back on the phone with Jack Meehan. I called him up. And I said, here's what I think is going on. He is um, taking cash payments in lieu of issuing a business license to commercial establishments in Emeryville. And he says, how do you know that? And I said, because uh, one of the steel company guys came in here and asked me how much he owed this year. And I said, I don't know, whatever your business license is. He said, no, I prefer to do the political donation. And I said, there's no political donations. You have to pay a business license, sir. So anyway, I relay this to uh, Jack Meehan. And then Jack finally decided, you know, I don't think there's enough evidence here. That was that. He said, because there's $100 bills in file, doesn't cut it. We have to find somebody who actually says they, and anyway, he sent out investigators at the time. And he said, I, I, they all clammed up. During this fiasco, Joe realized that Emeryville's business license ordinance was way out of date, so he had to draft a new one. What happened next gives a little hint as to how much off-the-books money Lacoste was pulling in at the expense of the town he was supposed to be protecting. So I copied Oakland's business license ordinance, and it didn't really increase the rates that much, just here and there massage a little bit. That next year, the city's business license revenue increased by $1 million. So I think that the businesses in Emeryville were paying a lot of money as donations to political candidates in the neighborhood. And I suspect those political candidates didn't have a clue the money was improperly funneled to them. Some of the problems that Lacoste left behind weren't as easy to clean up. Just one example, Joe told me that he'd heard rumors that the police chief took bribes from one of the local steel mills in exchange for letting them dump toxic slag balls in the mudflats along the bay. Another time, Joe got a call about a pipe that had been apparently pumping raw sewage directly into the bay for years. How was the building owner able to get away with such a flagrant violation for so long? Was an inspector paid off? Who knows? Under Lacoste's reign, corruption flourished everywhere in Emeryville. Joe found criminal conspiracies even when he wasn't looking. He'd just stumble into them everywhere that he went. How I learned later on that the card, some of the card rooms like the Key Club was controlled by the Wa Ching gang, and they were at San Francisco organized crime gang, I don't know if they're still in Emeryville or not, I sort of doubt it, is one day I I went to, uh, uh, there's a Chinese restaurant down by where Trader Vic's is, it's a little further, just a smidgen out, but kind of you can throw a baseball, and, 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 and I went in there and the food was dismal, it was terrible for lunch, and there was hardly anybody in there, and, you know, I was talking to the to the house business and, and they said, it's been terrible, oh, it's too bad, okay. I didn't think much about it. And I go back and I asked my finance director who, who I appointed, a new one. I said, how, how is this restaurant doing? I don't remember the name of it. And he said, oh man, they, they have, they're doing great. I said, what do you mean they're doing great? I just talked to him and said, doing horrible. He pulled up the numbers and he said, look, they, they're making more money than, than Trader Vic's. What? How could that be? So I walk upstairs and 
to my police chief and say, "Hey, you know, I got, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a cop, but you know, I, this, this is, this is, this is just not right." You know, here I got this restaurant. It's a dump, lousy food. You know, you could shoot a cannon through there, not hit anybody, and you know, at lunchtime, and you'd think the place would be busy. Like at Trader Vic's, you can't even you can't even eat lunch in there. You need a reservation, and this place is you know, dead. And he looked at me and he said, "Wow, Joe. Well, the uh, state of California Department of Justice is investigating them for money laundering." Yeah. They are. They are. He said, "How many people in finance know that you're suspicious?" I said, "The whole damn department," because I was just down there asking what the what their gross receipts were. So he he uh, he called up the Department of Justice and he said, uh, "Well, the city manager just blew the blew the lid off the deal. Half the finance department knows what's going on." And that week they were raided. In the 1980s. Emeryville's problems were, unfortunately, a lot bigger than money laundering. Most of the big factories had shut down, taking away Evil's tax revenues and leaving behind decrepit buildings soaked with toxic chemicals. But what Emeryville did have was a prime location. And from Joe Tanner's perspective, that incredible asset, huge swaths of real estate right in the center of a major metropolitan area. He thought that asset was being squandered. Santa Fe Railroad was one of the town's biggest landowners, and most of their property was occupied by rusty old warehouses and decommissioned rail yards. As city planner, Joe's idea, his dream really, was to rezone these former rail and industrial sites for commercial development. That was not an easy task. I talked to the Santa Fe Railroad people, and they sent a guy out, and his name was Bert Bangsberg. He was their real estate guy. And he said, we are not going to go for this. Forget it. And I said, no, well, we're going to do it. You know, your, your buildings look terrible. They're, they're dilapidated. You're, you know, what, why do you want these old crappy buildings? This is, like where, this is like where the Target and Home Depot and Best Buy is now? Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, uh, no, not where Best Buy is. Where Home Depot is and outside. Okay. Okay. And Santa Fe owned all the land practically up to San Pablo Avenue. So they, they were going to sue, sue the city to stop this. I didn't know who to call. So I, you know, I'm a brazing dumb kid. I called the chairman of the board, Santa Fe Railroad. He answered the phone. He said, yes, our man out there says you want to, oh, he was he was a he was a kick. Every other word was F U C K. Uh, <laughs> he said, I understand you want to F us. And I said, No, sir, I want to make you a lot of money. He said, No, bullshit. And I said, Well, come on out of the site. He said, I'm gonna be in Oakland on whatever. It was like in a week. Yeah. I said, I'll meet you at the site. He said, I'll meet you at City Hall. No, I want to meet you at the site. I said. Anyway. All right, I'll meet you at the site. So I go to, that day. I go to the site. Burke Bangsberg and I are there, and he's telling me, "Man, he's going to tear you a new one." And, oh my God, I feel sorry for you, and you're done. He's done with you. <laughs> so anyway, the chairman of the board shows up in a black limo. He gets out and he says, "What the f?" And, and why are you trying to screw us? And I said, "Sir, with all due respect," and he said, "You're just a young shithead kid." Sir, with all due respect, look over your head. What is that? It's a freeway. Look over there. What What is that? I, he said, that's another freeway. He said, now that's Interstate 80 and that's Interstate 580. Guess how many cars go by there every morning? Uh, he looked at me. I don't know. I said, 225,000. Guess how many go by every night? Another 225,000. And you're sitting here with warehouses. This is retail. Look at the number of cars that go by, and they can see this whole site from the freeway, visible. You could put a shopping mall down here. And he looked at Burke Bangberg, and he said, you dumb, he called him a dumb <laughs> shit right in front of me. And he said, I want you to prepare a letter for my signature to support this young man. He got in a limo and drove off. Uh -huh. And we rezoned that property, and that's where Home Depot sits today. 
After three years in Emeryville, Joe was lured away by a city planner job in Pleasant Hill. He hasn't been involved in Emeryville politics for decades, but he's watched the city's transformation from afar with some satisfaction that the vision he had all those years ago, it mostly came to fruition. I mean, (laughs) sure, paving the way for the development of big box stores isn't exactly a utopian dream, but you know, those big box stores do generate a lot of taxes and they hire a lot of workers. And I think most people would agree that they're an improvement over crumbling wasteland of lead, asbestos, arsenic, and God knows what else. What about now when you look at the state of Emeryville, do you feel like this is kind of what you were envisioning and trying to push for, you know, 20, 35 years ago when you were there? You know, I saw that bridge going up and I had to laugh. I had to absolutely laugh and I said, this is exactly what I envisioned. Exactly. Then I, I saw uh, Ikea going in, I just laughed again. I saw Home Depot going in, laughed again. I mean, I saw Emeryville transition from a dirty industrial town to a, a real retail hub. All right, so that last section focused mostly on a very short period of Emeryville history in the 1980s. But as you'll hear in this next section, <laughs> this little town's reputation for, uh, shall we say, bad behavior goes back much further all the way to its founding, really. Emeryville's first major industry, even before the town itself was incorporated, was gambling. In 1871, a racetrack was built, and it was so popular, it gave rise to the era of Emeryville as a sort of Las Vegas of the East Bay. You know, soon there were card rooms, brothels, bars, and even an amusement park. Um, And horrifically, that amusement park, by the way, was built on top of an ancient Ohlone shell mound. Uh, If you want to hear more about that particular story, go back and listen to episode 17 of this podcast. I did an entire episode all about it. Uh, Anyway, that amusement park and a lot of those other alcohol-fueled enterprises, uh, they started shutting down about a century ago. And that's where I'll pick up the conversation with my next guest, Rob Arias. Rob is the publisher of the Evil Eye news site. He's an active member of the Emeryville Historical Society, which puts out a wonderful quarterly newsletter, I should add. Uh, And Rob is also the creator of a new self-guided walking tour that's focused on the Park Avenue corridor in uh, South Emeryville. You'll be hearing more about all those things in this conversation, so let's jump right into it, starting with Rob's thoughts on the state of Emeryville at the dawn of the 1920s. The reason they closed? Prohibition. That's kind of what gambling <laughs> vice is what kept these places going. Yeah. And as soon as like we decided like those are no longer part of our moral values, you know, gambling and uh, and drinking alcohol. Um, <laughs> the side effect of that was these places closed down. So well, it's not like the drinking exactly stopped in Emeryville. It just yeah. kind of went underground <laughs> into these speakeasies, some of which were notoriously located right next to the Emeryville Police Department's headquarters and. Uh, as the story goes, it was actually the Emeryville Police Department themselves who were running and overseeing yeah. a lot of this, these illegal Shocking. drinking and gambling <laughs> establishments. Yeah, so as that red, red yeah. light district era was kind of winding down, this is when Emeryville is sort of starting to emerge as a major industrial hub yeah. of the Bay Area. So, uh, you know, getting back to that site where the Shell Mound was, tell me about the next phase of, of that region of Emeryville. Yeah, we know that uh, Shelmont Park closed down and likely Prohibition was the culprit, you know, of it closing down. Um, after that, they partitioned it for uh, industrial use. And that particular um, area uh, ended up becoming the C.K. Uh, Williams Paint Factory. So that's after they totally leveled the Shell Mound, you know, and it's gone mm-hmm. at that point. And that existed for 60-something years, you know. It was acquired by Pfizer, and for some of the older listeners, uh, there was, you know, a couple of factories around there, uh, the C.K. Williams plant you mentioned, then kind of adjacent to it in, in the vicinity, there was also the Sherman Williams paint factory, mm-hmm. which a lot of people might remember because of this kind of iconic, huge logo, this huge sign that was on top of that uh, building. Yeah. Can you... Neon. Yeah, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was massive, you know, and yeah, it had this kind of 
animated step-by-step uh, neon that said cover the earth <laughs> and it was like the the sign it, that said cover the earth it basically like the image was like a paint can like dumping paint yes. all over the planet earth red paint on the planet earth yeah. you know it's like so brutal <laughs> like it's such is. a fascinating way of branding your product but uh yeah those those were the days yeah and uh they changed the logo at some point you know under pressure from environment environmentalist uh, groups and I think there was blowback, you know, because people liked it, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's yeah. nostalgia for these things, you know. Totally. So it doesn't, uh, I don't think it's something they use often. They brought it back, I think, briefly for an anniversary that they had, you know. Okay. But for the most part, that's like, you know, yeah. just something nostalgic. The other thing that people remember, you know, from that area was just these huge uh, plumes, you know, emanating from the Judson Steel factory, you know. Again, I yeah. think those are the two things that people who maybe didn't live in Emeryville but passed it frequently, remember about that area. Again, Judson Steel, <laughs> these glowing furnaces, you know, yeah. that you could be seeing from, stacks. you know, yeah. miles away. And uh, again, that massive Sherwin-Williams neon, you know, and, uh, you know, the cover of the earth. Right. It was a thriving town, but just insanely polluted. And yeah. uh, I know that when those factories started closing down, I think the Sherman... Williams plant actually lasted um, up until like the early 2000s, but yeah. basically ever since then, up until like literally this year, it's been uh, environmental re remediation, right? Trying to pull all that lead and arsenic and all the gross stuff they left behind out of the soil in order to make it safe again. And uh, I mean, we're going to focus mainly on history this hour, but can you tell people what's there now? Well, yeah. After, so the plant closed down in 2006. I was still living there uh, at the time. I moved to Emeryville in 2002. Still long enough to have di uh, diesels like idling outside my window, you know, but after 2006, they shut down. Extensive remediation, you know, I know there was some jockeying between uh, Sherwin-Williams and the city as far as who was going to pay to clean it up. Yeah. Um, and there was some pretty wild uh, ideas about what kind of uh, structure they wanted to see there. But ultimately, of course, they settled on housing and, uh, you know, there was uh, quite a bit of negotiation but they ended up uh, getting, you know, three acres of uh, park space and uh, pathways out of it. You know, now there's 500 units, 85 of them are affordable and it's basically a new neighborhood yeah. <laughs> in the city, you know. And like a brand new park. I yes. mean, there's like community gardens, basketball court, like kind of Instagram friendly art uh, yeah. installations. It's Kids it's a park. Pretty, it's a pretty beautiful park. Yeah, yeah. cut through, you know, where the, uh, the warehouse used to be or is, you know, that was mm -hmm. renovated. Um, now it's called The Lab. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at 45th there, you can kind of, you know, yeah. just cruise right through. And that was uh, something that was negotiated by the uh, nearby artist co-op. Um, yeah. Because they, one thing you notice about Emeryville is they have a lot of super blocks, you know, just big, big areas that you have to like walk around, you know, that are, just make it less convenient. You know? It's a so, very rectangular city. Yeah. Exactly. These huge uh, buildings with kind of neat rows of windows and a lot of brick. But uh, kind of taking a step back to the actual founding of Emeryville as a yeah. city, because when the racetrack started, Emeryville wasn't even incorporated yet. But, you know, one of the reasons why I find history so relevant is the fact that, like, these decisions that were made 100, 150, 200 years ago still have such a huge impact on the world that we're living in today. Um, for example, I think Emeryville's got a pretty business friendly uh, climate, or at least a reputation for a business friendly climate, at least compared to, you know, Berkeley and Oakland uh, or San Francisco, which are a little bit more notorious for their for their red tape. And that sort of attitude seems like it was kind of baked into Emeryville since its very founding. So it was really businessmen, developers, you know, investors who started Emeryville. Can you tell me a little bit about that history? Yeah. Favorable tax rates, you know, again, a more business friendly environment. I mean, that's really been Emeryville's bread and butter. And I don't really think that's changed, you know, even though obviously uh, what's made Emeryville successful, you know, from industry to, I don't know, I guess you could call it biotech, you know, it's probably, it would be probably one of the larger um, industries within the city. That hasn't really changed. But I mean, going back to, you know, Trotting Park, which I think is really <laughs> the question, you know, is, uh, again, gambling was just a little more accepted, you know, within the city. And uh, Oakland was kind of starting to turn the screws on these, on these, uh, you know, illegal operations. So yeah, they didn't want to be regulated, right? I mean, exactly. Oakland was sort of positioned, at least back then, as sort of an alternative to the sin and the quote-unquote dirtiness and craziness of San Francisco. Yeah. But Oakland was the place for sort of respectable families to go. Yeah. Um, there was famously like a lot of churches in early Oakland. It was kind of like the more morally upright city compared to compared to the, you know, the, the sin and the vice yeah. of San Francisco. And Emeryville was like, 
like, hey, the East Bay could use a little bit of that action. I mean, didn't they, uh, when they were developing the borders of Emeryville, didn't they specifically draw the borders to keep out all churches and houses of worship because they didn't want any do-gooders trying yeah. to rain on their parade with all the gambling and bordellos and whatnot happening in Emeryville? Absolutely true, yeah. I mean, especially along the eastern, you know, border there that uh, borders Oakland, you know. I mean, these you know, these groups, these church groups had, uh, had influence and... Uh, I mean, they ended up um, voting, you know, obviously to incorporate in 1896, the, the trustees at the time, and they drew the border in a way that would uh, omit, you know, these these groups that held influence over, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, it was, it, you could call it like early gerrymandering, yeah. you know, of, yeah. uh, of who gets to influence, you know, what happens within the town. So, Rob, you recently um, helped develop a tour of the park avenue district of emeryville a place that is just lined with these historic buildings i mean this is one thing that's kind of amazing there's so many buildings still standing structures that exist that are 100 years older or some some going back even farther than that Uh, and you start this tour it's a self-guided uh walking tour it's great you can uh, download a free app to check it out but the tour starts at a location kind of right behind ikea just on the other side of the track so you call this site a, quote, nexus of manufacturing, transportation, and political power in Emeryville. So tell me about your decision to start the tour at this location. Um, yeah, what's the story of that site? Yeah, so at the foot of Park Avenue, I mean, you wouldn't know it now, you know, by looking at it, because if you are if you take the tour, you know, today, you're going to be staring at the back of Ikea, the <laughs> big blue box. But, <laughs> but that foot of Park Avenue really was, you know, kind of the... The center of the, the town at the time to the right was where the stables were for uh, trotting park and to the left was uh, the commercial union hotel this hotel that had a card room of course of course <laughs> hotels yeah. where i think a lot of uh the local judson employees stayed um judson employees being of course uh, employees of judson steel the yes, giant yes. uh you know uh steel plant that you mentioned a minute ago yeah that of course is uh was located where the ikea is now but this is where the board of uh, original board of trustees for the city of Emeryville met. So these names that we only um, recognize from street names now, Christie, Doyle. This is where Emery, the, em, R, yeah, and yeah. Joseph Emery, Joseph Emery, um, yeah. met and uh, established the city. So I always think of that line in uh, Hamilton. You know, the room where it happened. I mean, this is the room where it happened. You know, for the city of Emeryville. You know, yeah. prior to incorporation in 1896, and just a few late years later. You know, down Park Avenue built uh, City Hall at the cost of just a few thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was the proverbial smoky yeah. back room where it all went down. Yeah. They, so they, the building ended up burning down, unfortunately. You know, I think uh, there, there's apparently yeah. some mystery about how it burned down, you know, but you yeah. know, we, don't, we don't have any minutes from these meetings, right. you know, but yeah. uh, again, this is, this, is where, um, this is where it all started Commercial yeah. Union Hotel. So Emeryville really rose up, as we mentioned, as a major industrial hub of the Bay Area during the first half of the 20th century. It was on the water. It had access to tons of railroad tracks, so it was easy to ship things in and out, very close to the Port of Oakland. But then, you know, kind of in the post-war era, things really start to change. Globalization, of course, kind of starts becoming more of a factor. So a lot of these heavy industries are offshoring, you know, to places where labor is cheaper, materials are cheaper, uh, environmental regulations, if they even exist, are much less lax than uh, in the Bay Area, where thanks to a growing environmental movement, uh, you weren't able to just blast uh, smoke all over the nearby neighborhoods any longer, dump your garbage into the Bay. And um, a huge part of Emeryville's history, really going back decades now, kind of the key to the new developments that are happening with residential buildings and parks and things like that coming in has been environmental remediation. And, you know, that involves, of course, removing lead and arsenic and all these, you know, disgusting things from the soil. But there's also some rather interesting ways of remediating land, some of which I learned about on your tour. And one of these methods for environmental remediation involves cottage cheese. (laughs) Apparently, it's not just a tasty snack. Tell me about that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, going back to, again, the 80s when these uh, big companies were fleeing and uh, globalization, um, Emeryville was falling apart, crumbling, you know? And, and there still is quite a few sites, you know, that have uh, the need to be remediated. But again, every time they build a new development, some of this land is remediated by the Department of Toxic Substances. Am I saying that right? <laughs> um, this particular building, like toward the end of the tour, you know, the industrial hard chrome 
plating factory, which is now the uh, Icon Apartments, the building, the industrial hardcore plating company, you know, manufactured. It dipped uh, bumpers, you know, from cars in chrome. And one of the um, byproducts of it was chromium. So don't ask me to explain. I'm not a scientist, but apparently cottage cheese can, uh, you know, absorb, I guess, the uh, impacts of, of chromium. It's not the only, um, you know, I think organic compound that people use to do soil remediation. You know, I've heard, you know, mushrooms and uh, (laughs) all kinds of other things that people grow on the the soil of former um, industrial areas, you know. But yeah, uh, no, it's just wild to think like, oh, you know, just dump cottage cheese on those carcinogens (laughs) and, you know, it'll bond with the, I guess, like the harmful, um, you know, molecules or whatever and kind of neutralize it. Right. I mean, it's kind of it's it's really like a kind of a beautiful solution. I guess as long as you don't leave the cottage cheese sitting out too long exactly. in the sun. It's curled, uh, you're you dealing know. With it, then you're dealing with a different kind of pollution, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of amazing. Walking down Park Avenue, as I mentioned, there's just so many buildings that are 100, over 100 years old. I mean, if you squint, you can really imagine what it would have looked like uh, in the early 1900s. How have so many of these buildings survived? I mean, there's been earthquakes, there's been redevelopment. What has kept the character of this neighborhood alive all these years? Yeah, I mean, there's still, I mean, some of it is just, you know, with what they call facadism, you know, where they keep mm-hmm. like one wall and then they, yeah. like the icon, you know, is an example of that. Again, where the uh, industrial hard chrome plating factory was, you know, uh-huh. all they did was keep the front of it and destroyed everything else. Mm-hmm. But there's still, yeah, there was a significant amount of buildings that just maintain their structure. And those are, of course, the ones that survived the 1989 quake, you know, after yeah. 89, quite a few of them were demolished whether they were you know sizingly unfit or they just there's an opportunity there i guess yeah. you know to yeah. to just start over you know but um i think after the 89 quake and there was quite a bit of demolition of these buildings uh people finally started kind of raising their eyebrows they formed a, the park avenue district committee that identified you know some of the buildings that they mm-hmm. thought were architecturally significant and a resolution was passed to protect them. I think throughout the city now there's as many as like 85 structures wow. and this isn't like like the historic register of historic places uh-huh. where it basically makes them impossible to demolish you know they can yeah. still demolish them but yeah. they have to run it through city council right. so i think you and know, there's like incentives to yeah. keep the old buildings right like tax um, breaks and things like that yeah or at least to you know remediate them and uh you know develop them into into something else there there's been a couple of attempts you know pg e wanted to destroy their uh, laboratory building at one point you know and mm-hmm. i think the city raised an issue with that because they didn't really have a good plan for what they wanted to do with it you know, you know it's funny that you mentioned that because when i was doing walking you know the route of the tour mm-hmm. uh the neighborhood's in great shape so many of these buildings really look like they're in tip-top shape you know even brick buildings are 100 years old i mean they look really sturdy and well manicured and there's like all these new benches and the sidewalks are in good condition etc and then you come across this one building that just looks so decrepit. Um, it just looks gloomy. It almost looks haunted. There's like broken windows. And this is not some, you know, old corporation that went out of business decades ago and abandoned, you know, their responsibility. This is owned by PG&E, still one of the most powerful corporations <laughs> in California. And it, it seems to yeah. me what they're doing there is, you know, because they weren't allowed to demolish it uh, the way they wanted to, they're demolishing it in a different way, uh, a phrase that's very familiar to a lot of kind of historical preservationists, which is demolition through neglect. Is that the vibe you're getting from that situation? <laughs> I think you nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the windows are busted. If you can, you can peek in and see some, uh, some tagging that was going in there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a tragedy because uh, that, that entire cluster of buildings, you know, that's referred to as the PG&E Central Warehouse Group, next year, it'll be 100 years old. It's yeah. like one of the longest active um facilities i think in their their portfolio so uh again pg e started building you know in the east bay after the 1906 quake so again emeryville always uh, an opportunist you know and uh yeah after uh uh, 1906 when san francisco was in disarray emeryville benefited from that So, you know, I worked in Emeryville like 20 years ago, and I didn't really know the area that well, and I rode my bike through, and you see these big brick buildings that we're talking about on the tour, and they can seem a little imposing. Um, You know, it's just like these huge brick facades with these windows, and there's a lot going on behind (laughs) some of those windows, behind those brick walls. Um, Like, one of the more interesting uh, aspects of Emeryville history is, I know one of the reasons these buildings have survived is because artists started moving in. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Emeryville was kind of a pioneer in this sort of uh, 
trend of live work loft conversions, which um, I think kind of started in like uh, Lower East Side, New York and places like that, Soho, and has really, you know, spread throughout the country since then. But Emeryville was really kind of on the forefront of that, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, it comes down to cheap rent, you know, in the end. And uh, Emeryville was in such a, a state of disrepair there in the uh, 70s and 80s that uh, you know, it just wasn't a desirable place to live. But it had the, the bones, you know, the architecture yeah. that artists covet, you know, like these big, big where, spaces, big spaces, yeah. you know, that they can kind of just frame the way that they want and, uh, you know, high enough ceilings to, to do their, um, their work. Um, the one that's on the tour, of course, is the em- uh, Emeryville Artists uh, Co-op which this year celebrated its 50th year in existence, you know, and quite a, quite a story, you know, about how they came to be. Um, it was you know, we, two women from Berkeley who started it? Or? I don't know their names, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, was, it was two women who uh-huh. kind of facilitated the whole thing. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, as it, um, it sounds like there was, a, you know, a little bit of, a, you know, political maneuvering, you know, amongst the, the people that lived there that kind of wanted a, a little bit better control over uh-huh. the way that it was, that it was run. Uh, you know, ended up uh, raising the money to, to buy it, and they formed a you know co-op. So, oh. and then eventually they you know ended up buying some of the adjacent properties. You know, and uh, it, it is quite the epicenter of uh, artistry, I'd say, in in the city. And yeah. a lot of the original uh, artists, you know, that helped found that, they're still around. They're in their seventies and eighties, but you know, they've established a model. You know, where newer newer artists and new blood, I guess, is coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they're in, in solid footing. You know, yeah. That's great. And it's not just visual artists that took advantage of Emeryville's giant empty factories and warehouses to kind of convert them into studios and loft spaces. Uh, A lot of musicians have used Emeryville over the years, right? Like, can you give me some examples of bands or musicians that people might be familiar with who have uh, practiced or or utilized Emeryville? Yeah. Well, where I I used to live at the Emeryville um, warehouse lofts, that was a well-known like artist practice space. You know, some of the bands I've heard that played there I mean, the two that I can confirm definitely played there. Um, Flipper, you know, 80s punk band. Big punk band, yeah. Yeah. Um, Counting Crows. Not a punk band, obviously. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> a little bit different vibe. <laughs> yeah, but we know that uh, 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 the, the lead singer, you know, uh, went to UC Berkeley. And uh, mm-hmm. so it's not like too far-fetched that he would have a practice space, you know, there in I, uh, Jason Emeryville. Yeah. I've heard Adam, and I would love... Adam Duritz. Adam Duritz, yes. I was uh, going to say, I've heard, and again, this is, I guess, not confirmed, but, you know, everyone loves hearing the rumors. Everyone loves hearing the, the gossip um, about local history. I've heard that the uh, somewhat infamous developer, Phil Tagami, who is uh, currently embroiled mm-hmm. in a major lawsuit with Oakland over his desire to build a coal port uh, over at the old army base. I heard that back in I guess it probably would have been like late 80s, early 90s that he was like a roadie for Counting Crows or something back then. So. Wow. I have not heard that one. <laughs> I need to dig into that one. Yeah. We know that he's, uh, you know, <laughs> still active, you know, in, in politics. Uh, maybe I'll hit him up on Twitter yeah, and say, hey, yeah. dude, is there any, <laughs> any substance to this rumor? Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, the other one, you know, that, again, I, I can't confirm. You know, Green Day, who, uh, you know, Mike Dirt, you know, their bassist, uh, who at one point for a long time owned, you know, the nearby Rudy's Can't Fail Cafe. Um, I mean, they must have intersected with that, with the yeah. warehouse at some point. I got to I got to think, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a lot of punk shows happening in Emeryville back in the day. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Phil Tagami, Shotgun Phil, if you are listening, bang my line, hit me up. We want to know the truth. Were you a Counting Crows roadie in the early 90s? <laughs> Um, you know what, Rob, as long as we're talking about sort of myths, rumors, the fun stuff, the gossip, um, there are persistent stories about secret tunnels Mm. underneath Emeryville. What are some of like the, the legends that you've heard? And, um, is there any truth to any of these underground secret tunnel Emeryville stories? I could, I could tell you that I've heard of them too. I've never been in any of them, you know, <laughs> and I've never been able to 100% confirm the rumor of a tunnel between uh, City Hall and uh, Kitty Corner, which was uh, Dugan's Theater. That's the that to me that makes the most sense, you know, yeah. if there was a tunnel, because we know that Dugan's was uh, it was a brothel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they had quote unquote Hollywood beauties performing <laughs> stage shows at night, and I don't think they were just on stage uh, performing either. Yeah, shall we say. And, and a bar, you know, and, a bar, and, yeah. Yeah. and the bar was open twenty four seven too, which uh, 
<laughs> that's pretty mm. pretty wild yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i don't want to like you know throw these politicians of the air under the bus but you know let's just say they they like to indulge a bit can we uh, can we agree yeah <laughs> the, the other tunnel you know that you know again in theory uh you know went all the way from city hall down park avenue all the way to oaks card club here's the thing oaks card club it is currently in the fourth generation of family-owned uh business you know john tibbetts his son, Cole, uh, is currently running it. John's still active. He's still alive. But he did confirm in an article that underneath, I think they're safe, was a tunnel that he said he's never been in. Hmm. And Didn't he suggest it was for, like, in case the place was ever raided, there would well, be a way to get out? he did have another secret entrance okay. that I think led to adjacent uh, Asian laundromat. Wow. And Cole's identified that. That, I think, still exists. But the tunnel that runs under there, it sounds to me like it, was, it might be obscured by the... Uh, uh, by the vault there, you know, and he said he's never been in it. So, you know, we're not, <laughs> if it is, it's probably like crawl space, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> I'd guess... still like to know, you know, again, if anybody hears your, your, it, hears a rumor that would confirm any of this, that's, yeah. it's a pretty long distance though. I mean, you did the tour all the way from uh, city hall to Oaks would be yeah, pretty significant. That seems yeah. a little sketchier. Although I will say there is one, um, tunnel, which I guess is technically a storm drain. Um, mm-hmm. of course, uh, Temescal Creek, which yes. was a major uh, waterway um, flowing down from the East Bay Hills out to the bay through Emeryville. It was culverted, essentially. You know, the, the creek, um, which once ran wild and free, uh, was surrounded with cement, turned into a, you know, a, a storm drain. And um, I don't think it's legal, but I think if one is bold enough, you can still get down there. I actually know people who have recorded music down there because oh, wow. of the acoustics. Yeah. But that's that's not really a, a tunnel per se. It's more of, more of a giant storm drain. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if anyone knows about any secret tunnels in Emeryville or anywhere else, honestly, <laughs> just slide into my DMs. I love those kinds of stories. Yeah, and if you if you cross the new South uh, Bayfront Bridge, that's the new red bridge that goes you know across the railroad tracks there. Yeah. Um, you can kind of see where that tunnel uh, exits. And I can confirm that a former council member, uh, Scott Donahue, <laughs> has uh, it, it taken a, a canoe, you know, through that before wow. he's, he's admitted to me. So, yeah, wow. there, yeah, there was a canoe anchored, in fact, you know, when I went by there uh, at one point. I don't know if it's still there. Wow. But so I, th- I thought a lot of graffiti artists, you know, use yeah. the canoe to, like, create their murals on the Def- side. So. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, getting back to the Oaks Car Club, which you mentioned, um, it was established uh, as you as you mentioned on the tour, all the way back in the 1890s, yeah. uh, making it one of the, uh, actually, I think the oldest card lounge in Northern California, uh-huh. and really kind of the only remaining link to Emeryville's uh, Rotten City era, you know, back when Emeryville was the, the red light district, the haven of vice. Uh-huh. Um, and there used to be quite a few card clubs in that corridor, you know, the Key Club, for yes. example, uh, but all those other card clubs closed, most of them long ago. How has the Oaks club survived so long i mean over a hundred years as a card room that's just astonishing yeah what's the secret to their longevity yeah i think that you know i mean yeah at one point i think there were as many as like six different card rooms sands was another one you, you mentioned the key club um i think after a while there was just a lot of consolidation you know i don't think any city needs six different uh, key clubs you know but clearly there's enough appetite for uh gambling you know to support one of them. And I think now it's kind of a marriage of convenience. I think if you ask some people in the city if they'd like to see uh, the Oaks go bye-bye, they might support that. But the reality is they're a revenue generator. I mean, 7%, um, I think as of the last budget cycle, and it used to be a lot more. I remember when uh, John Tibbetts came in and and he, this is the first time I had heard that, that the taxes generated from his card room could basically fund the entire fire department. <laughs> this is astonishing to me. I think it's mentioned on the tour that the Oaks Card Club, which also is open 24-7, yes. is the single largest tax revenue generator in Emeryville, which, first of all, it's not that big of a building. I mean, compared to like a Vegas casino or something, or even a place like Cash Creek, it's tiny. But also, you're talking about a town with the Pixar headquarters yeah. with Ikea, these huge multinational corporations, giant 20 acre campuses, you know, these huge box stores and this tiny little card room is generating more tax revenue than any of them. I mean, yeah. it's just kind of mind blowing. It is. It is. Um, yeah. Especially Pixar who has uh, a thousand employees, you know, but clearly got some favorable tax breaks, you know, to come there from uh, Point Richmond. The fact that 
a card room, you know, provides more revenue to the city. Pixar provides probably revenue and other unseen things, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it just gives the city a certain cash, so I don't want to completely yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> discredit them, you know. But uh... Another uh, building that I wanted to mention that I passed by on the tour is a low slung brick building that used to be the Semi Freddy's mm. Bakery. I used oh, to ride yeah. by it every day on my commute. And um, I have a soft spot in my heart for the old Sammy Freddy's Bakery because, first of all, it smelled incredible. You know, just that smell of I freshly baked bread. It. And I would, um, well, there's no really gentle way of putting this, but I was a dumpster diver back then. <laughs> and the Sammy Freddy's bread was not only bagged. They were every day with the extra bread, I guess they were bagging bread and then throwing it away. But it wasn't just single bagged. They were taking the individually bagged loaves and putting those in even bigger, kind of like brown bags. And you would go to that dumpster and it would just be full of literally dozens, if not hundreds of loaves of like all their name brand breads. You know, these weren't the rejects. These were, I guess, just the, you know, ones they made that people didn't pick up that day or something like that. And I lived um, at the corner of 16th and Mission in the city at the time. And I would like fill my panniers on my bike up with bread and bring it back to 16th and Mission. And I lived in an old uh, post office with like 15 other people. So we'd, we'd eat the bread, we'd give it to Food Not Bombs, we'd hand it out at the corner to like, you know, the homeless people and whatnot. And that bread fed like people for so <laughs> long, all that free semi Freddy's bread. So yeah. I was sad when that place closed. I, I remember that. I mean, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't dumpster dive, you know, maybe if I would have been uh, a little more aware of that, I probably would have, you know, maybe I would have beat you to the punch, you know. And, uh, <laughs> there was plenty of bre- bread to go place. around. Yeah. 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 Um, at the same time, you know, one of the things I remember about the area, and I don't leave the smell of like fresh baked bread, but it was a uh, Pete's coffee, you know, who used to manufacture, roast their beans there, you know, yeah. so I would come home from work and, uh, you know, you can, you could smell that, that, that smell of roasting coffee. So it kind of takes me back. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of, uh, Emeryville in that era that I, that I, I truly miss. I mean, manufacturing has changed over the years, obviously, mm-hmm. and they've gone from kind of... <laughs> yeah, hopefully you're not smelling too much coming from the biotech labs. <laughs> yeah, I don't miss the smell of uh, Sherwin-Williams and, yeah. you know, whatever they were creating, you know, but, yeah. you know, some of the bakeries and, uh, uh, you know, coffee, that brings me back to that era of Emeryville, that early aughts, you know, era. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, it was it was kind of a wild time uh, in the town's history because it was sort of in between. I mean, the redevelopment was going, but it wasn't... Uh, you know, I mean, here we are two decade, te- decades later and it feels yeah. uh, very established. But, I mean, I had a friend who was squatting in Emeryville back then. She had this giant old, I think it was like part of like a, she called the building the power factory. I think it had something to do with some kind of local hmm. electricity infrastructure. Um, it was underneath like the Powell Street overpass, basically. Um, over there next to the, um, am- kind of by the Amtrak station. Okay. And uh, the building was demolished a while ago. But uh, yeah, p- people squatting. It might have been Westinghouse. Uh, I, I, well, okay. Yeah, I think they, you know, that was another building that was uh, damaged by the Wilmer Parade earthquake that, again, they yeah. seized the opportunity to demolish. A bu- beautiful building. and Beautiful uh, building, yeah. yeah. And side note, uh, Don Hausler, the uh, founder of, co-founder of the Emeryville mm-hmm. Historical Society. His father worked there, you know, which was a big oh, wow. reason that brought him into appreciating Emeryville history and, you know, researching it to the gr- degree that he has. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That, now that I'm thinking back, I'm just remembering that building was right next to where Alternative Tentacles, the famous local yep. punk yeah, label. Yeah, the Apex building, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Had, their, had, their, um, had their headquarters. On, I think it was owned by Jello Biafra. Maybe it still is. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not, I haven't He's kept He's still up. affiliated. Okay. I don't know, like, yeah. what, what, what degree, but, Of you know. the dead Kennedys fame. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that, but that would add to the, uh, you know, growing list of uh, punk bands that, you know, probably played in Emeryville. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, now that we're kind of just jumping around all over the place, yeah. if you have visitors in town, you know, family, friends, whatever, who have never been to Emeryville these days, where do you like to take people? What are some of the, your favorite kind of locations in Emeryville to show off what the town has to offer? This might like, yeah, this might not, uh, you know, fall in that category technically, but, you know, the couple times that I've had, you know, people over and I was still at, at the warehouse lofts, my father and my um, nephew, for one, I would take them on a bike ride across the Bay Trail, which starts, you know, right there in the Ikea parking lot. And uh, this was, of course, you know, after the, you know, the new East, East, <coughs> Eastern span was built and the, the bike trail was included. So it is uphill. So if you wanted to do something flatter, there are other alternatives. Uh, the Bay Trail, of course, you know, along the uh, along the shoreline, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or and now the Greenway, yeah. which uh, would be another flatter, you know, alternative to that. So I'd probably take them on a bike ride and uh, follow it up with some grub. You know, I think Emeryville is a is is a reasonable foodie destination. Oh, yeah. Um, if it was something more formal, 
it would probably be like one of the OG establishments, either Trader Vic's, the Townhouse, or the Honor Bar, uh, yeah. or Honor Kitchen and co- Cocktails, when they reopen, you yeah. know, again, yeah. they're, they're temporarily shut down. Well, yeah. you know, Rob, you just mentioned the Greenway, and yeah. we haven't really talked about the history of that yet. Um, yeah. for, for anyone who's not familiar, it's basically a, um, it's a little bit similar to, um, I, I went on a walk on it the other day, and it kind of reminded me almost of the High Line in Manhattan, yeah. where it's this kind of green pathway, uh, landscaped, manicured, uh, that connects all these kind of different parks and plazas, and similar to the High Line in uh, New York, which was built on an elevated railway, the Greenway in Emeryville took advantage of a former rail right-of-way. Can you tell me a little bit about that history? Yeah, again, yeah, former uh, rail right-of-way, you know, that, uh, you know, as Emeryville um, transitioned away from, you know, being an industrial city that it is, you know, was just kind of left in ruins, you know, and uh, luckily some of the people of that era, you know, rallied to include in the general plan that was uh, orchestrated by um, you know, Charlie Bryant, Bryant um, mm-hmm. former planning director that just retired this year, and uh, John Flores. Uh, you know, they put this uh, this vision, you know, into the general plan to uh, transition that to a pedestrian friendly, uh, bike friendly uh, walkway. And you know, for you know, twenty years, you know, it's kind of just been in a. Uh, a stalemate almost yeah the, little the bits northern. and pieces little bits and, and pieces but it's yeah. finally like come together and obviously the the southern southwestern section of it you know that runs through the sherwin Mills property mm-hmm. is is gorgeous it's beautiful yeah you know? oh, and uh lovely you know connects the whole thing so you can literally uh walk all the way to you know berkeley bowl get your groceries you know from the southern end of emeryville and yeah. come back <laughs> well it is a pretty welcome addition to have that lively artery you know with all these uh dog walkers and parents and strollers and pedestrians and bicyclists uh, sort of making their way through the through the heart of Emeryville every day. Because like I said, when I worked there 20 years ago, you know, riding my bike home at night or, or on the way in the morning, I feel like pedestrians were kind of few and far between back then. You know, it's kind of like these long, windy blocks, you know, these big brick buildings on either side sort of looming over you. And um, yeah, it didn't feel like there was a lot of like street life in Emeryville back then, yeah. um, at least on like on that in that section of Emeryville, the uh, the west side but um yeah it's really really transitioned really changed over the last decade or two thanks to again a lot of these projects that have been in the works for you know literally decades now that exactly taken, taken to complete yeah and it's uh you know i think it's part of uh you know emeryville's vision for itself is to uh you know more high density housing and to have more people to occupy those spaces and uh you know increase the pedestrian traffic so it's 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 coming along yeah no it's interesting too because i feel like a lot of other places in the Bay um, during the kind of like height of the gentrification years, you know, after the second dot-com boom, um, of course, there was a lot of uh, very um, legitimate concerns about displacement, you know, in places like San Francisco and, and Berkeley and Oakland. But I think the degree to which displacement was happening in Emeryville was maybe a little bit less because it wasn't neighborhoods that were being, you know, redeveloped per se, or like SROs that were being emptied out to turn into like boutique hotels. It was these old industrial sites, you know, people weren't living there and now they are. So it does seem like successful in that regard. And also I was actually looking up the stats the other day and Emeryville's average rent is similar to Oakland's, but a lot less than Berkeley's or San Francisco's. So affordability is kind of relative in the Bay Area. Yes. But I mean, compared to, you know, some of these other big cities that it's next to, um, Emeryville is not like a, a, a haven of elitism, at least as far as I can tell yet. You know, hopefully, yeah. hopefully it stays that way, you know, relatively accessible yeah. or affordable. And uh, yeah, I mean, people have been debating this, you know, for intensely for the last decade, you know, but it, it does, uh, does density, you know, like kind of help uh, alleviate that. I think Emeryville is making a case for maybe it does reduce or at least alleviate, you know, displacement. But Emeryville also, you know, I think it was the inclusionary housing, including affordable units, you know, within these uh, massive multifamily housing that have uh, kept, you know, some of the, you know, older residents, specifically seniors, you know, mm-hmm. Emeryville, especially along San Pablo Avenue has uh pretty substantial amount of affordable housing, you know. Oh, so if yeah. you look at the data, um, Emeryville's, uh, you know, specifically their black population has yeah. has has not plummeted the way that, you know, Berkeley and, uh, and Oakland has. And if, yeah. you know, San Francisco. Gonna, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people want to point to the fact that, you know, Emeryville's inclusionary housing and affordable housing has uh, has prevented that. Yeah, that's just great to see. Um, so you are the, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, the publisher, the founder of 
the local newsletter in Emeryville, the local news site, the Evil okay. Eye. We haven't really talked too much about your history mm. yet in this interview, but I was just wondering, just because you've been keeping it going for so long now, you know, it's a great little <laughs> resource for keeping up with Emeryville news. It's almost a curse. <laughs> <laughs> what What made you start the Evil Eye? Like, how did how were you like? I moved to this town. I'm going to start a local news website. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I had already been living there for uh, okay. you know almost a decade. You know, isn't okay. isn't you know a lot of people give uh, um, complain about crime in Oakland, but at the time, you know, all all the bad things that have happened to me happened in Emeryville. I got my car stolen, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Probably half a dozen bikes. And in 2010, you know, I was I was robbed at gunpoint. Like robbed out, at gunpoint. Yeah. Just wow. Walking my dog like two blocks from my home, you know, like. Yeah. I was uh, staring at my phone, completely unaware of my surroundings. Last thing I expected, you know, was for two kids to stick a gun in <laughs> in my chest and ask for my wallet and my phone, you know. But, you know, it happened and uh, there was a little bit of trauma. Or pe- you know, sure. I'll be Scary. honest, I almost peed my pants, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've had a gun stuck in you, but, uh, you know, you, you, you tend to, you know, <laughs> lose track of those things. So, and I, I just, I don't know, I couldn't let it go because I really wanted um nothing was written about it you know this is before next door or mm-hmm. you know really you know social media was still in kind of its infancy you know mm-hmm. so i needed an outlet and like to yeah. and I, I really wanted to warn people you know i wanted people to be more aware of their surroundings you know if there was um crime trends i wanted people to be aware of them in this case it was people getting stuck up for their uh <laughs> for their devices you know so yeah. you know i initially just said okay i'm just gonna like aggregate news you know mm-hmm. i'm just gonna like Find whatever story K- KRON writes or KTVU and share it on this web page. And then I just realized, like, nobody was writing about Emeryville. <laughs> I mean, the, the only thing they would write about was crime. So yeah. I just started branching off into different areas. And over time, you know, started writing about business and politics and history and building and planning. And yeah. all of it's pretty interesting to me, you know. I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, the politics gets the uh, least amount of, <laughs> of views, you know. Yeah. History may be getting, you know, one of the best. And yeah. crime still. I mean, crime is always going to be, you know, some, a driver to people want, wanting to read it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, again, we're going on 12 years here, yeah, you know. And amazing. I, every year I reevaluate it, like, do I want to keep doing this, you know? Because we, we all know it's a labor of love and it's not something that can pay the bills by itself. But without it, Emeryville would go back to its days of being a news desert, you know. The, mm-hmm. I think the thing I'm most proud of is that it's really the longest running news source, you know, in the city's history, you know. All right, I'm going to let you guys in on a not-so-surprising little secret. As two huge local history nerds, Rob and I could talk about this kind of stuff forever. And uh, <laughs> that's kind of what happened with this interview. Uh, we, we ended up talking for a long time, but I do try to keep this podcast to about an hour. So I'm going to cut things off there. But if you want to hear more good news, you can check out the Emeryville Historical Society, uh, subscribe to their newsletter, do the tour. You can even get involved. Uh, They always need help scanning photos, doing research, all that good stuff. Really cool organization. I will drop a link to EHS in my show notes. I should also give a shout out to another local organization called Holy H2O that uh, also has an Emeryville tour. That one is focused on Temescal Creek and uh, local watersheds. I'll drop a link to that in the show notes as well. And uh, that will just about do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And a big thank yous to Don Hausler and the rest of the Emeryville Historical Society crew, Elizabeth Doherty from Holy H2O. Uh, Shout out to my friend Shane Bauer, who connected me with Joe Tanner, and also Jillian D'Onofro, who uh, edited my Emeryville article for SF Gate. Uh, If you haven't read that yet, please check it out. I'll include that piece along with a bunch of other recent articles about local history in my newsletter, uh, which you can subscribe to for free at eastbayyesterday.com. As always, thank you so much to my Patreon subscribers. You folks are the ones keeping the show alive. I really could not do it without you. But if you can't afford to donate to the show, you can still help me out by spreading the word. Uh, Please tell everyone you know about East Bay yesterday. It will make me so very happy. Music for this episode came from Justin Lee. Uh, I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue, and please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast because I will be back soon, very soon hopefully, with another episode of East Bay Yesterday.